This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. My name's Sean Ennis. I'm Director of Public Policy and Societal Impact up here at ANU, and I'm very pleased to be able to uh, welcome you to this forum on community-led refugee sponsorship. What can Australia learn from the UK experience? Um, I am not going to speak for very long at all. And I'm going to hand on to the team because they are the people who are really here to speak for. But I just wanted to say two things. Tonight's forum really draws together two things that I think are incredibly important in public policy and the way uh, public policy needs to evolve around the world. The first is we need to look globally. And the movement of people across the world, be it refugees, settlement or other types of movement, is clearly one of the big defining factors of the world we live in today and the world we will live in tomorrow. Uh, it is, in the, in the way we think of things in the public policy hub, something that defines the world we want by 2060. The other element of this forum which delights me is how at a community <coughs> level we respond to those big global changes. Uh, and it is the community level response that I think needs to better be understood and better drive the way nations operate. So I'm delighted to be able to welcome you to this event. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we meet, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay my and our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Uh, we're going to start with a short BBC video on Canada, and then the, our speakers are going to take over from my very poor voice. So welcome to the ANU, and we'll start the video. After just nine months in Canada, Remus and Aya know their alphabet. And a lot more about being Canadian. This is almost look like Canada. Like thousands of Syrians, this family is sponsored by individuals like Claudia. They club together to respond to Syria's refugee crisis. So what other question words do you use? Her husband Andrew, an art dealer, helps three generations of the Abdullah family with their English. What time is it? And helps them settle in. You know my favorite what question is What's for dinner? <laughs> it's the best way to integrate newcomers into the country, to get them connected with the city, all the things that are available, and to create that warm arrival that sets the tone for the rest of their lives in Canada. But the past in Syria is hard to escape. Grandmother Nala's kitchen still smells of home and brings back memories. Thank God we're here. I feel happy, she says. But it makes me sad to remember family still suffering in Syria 
in Lebanon. But food helps build new memories too. A picnic in the park and a warm welcome for Nala from another of her family's Canadian sponsors. Their group raised enough money to support the Abdullahs for a year. Everyone at this gathering is doing something similar. You do hear critical voices, but for now, the public mood is largely positive. It's so striking just how different the mood is here than much of Europe. But then much about Canada is different. Every Syrian family here was carefully vetted and then welcomed by families here in Canada. And they haven't seen the kind of attacks here that have caused fear across so much of Europe. But when you look at this, you have to ask, could this kind of engagement be adopted somewhere else? Then suddenly, in this crowd, a family I know from Syria. It's been more than two years. Their lives were so desperate then. We're living as if we're waiting for death, Hanan told me. Little Dodd lived in fear. She hated the future, she said, not knowing if she'd live or die. And here she is today. I see my future now and I have something to do it here and like, I like Canada so much. Good evening everyone. Uh, first I'd like to thank everyone for coming along tonight and I'd like to also pay my respect to <coughs> traditional owners on the land on which we meet the Nungalgul people and I acknowledge their elders uh, past and present. Uh, thanks you too to um, the Australian Refugee Sponsorship Initiative for hosting this, uh, this event. So with the time that I've been allotted tonight, uh, I want to speak to you a little bit about the historical and current perspectives on community sponsorship in Australia. And really just to set the scene um, for Russell's talk on what's been happening in the UK and what we can learn from it. In doing so, I just want to hopefully draw out some uh, pertinent issues that we can discuss, some of which are unique to the Australian context, and some of which are quite common uh, to other countries who are also trialling or have uh, had a community sponsorship for such a long time. But before I dive in, I think it's worth taking a look, uh, taking a step back, I should say, and to consider why community sponsorship of refugees is such an important issue, and to explain in broad terms what we mean by community sponsorship and its place within broader refugee resettlement policy. As many of you may know, uh, we are currently facing the highest levels of displacement in the world uh, since World War II. The principle of asylum, which has underpinned um, international refugee law uh, for so many years, has been under attack by restrictive asylum policies of many states. 
The task of finding timely and predictable durable solutions for refugees has never been more urgent. In September 2016, the then US President Barack Obama um, hosted a summit of UN General Assembly states out of which arose the New York Declaration on Refugees and Migrants. That declaration encouraged states to increase their resettlement efforts, including through um, the creation of private sponsorship programs and what was termed um, alternative migration pathways. Um, since then, the, the, the actual negotiations on the compact uh, have taken place and we're now at the stage where that compact is in its final stages of, of drafting. And out of that, again, this whole notion of community sponsorship as a durable solution for refugees um, is really front and centre. And just last week, the immigration ministers of six states, Canada, UK, Argentina, New Zealand and Ireland and Spain, um, signed, co-signed a statement reiterating the importance of community sponsorship, both for refugees and for um, their respective governments. So it really is a sort of hot topic issue at the moment um, in the refugee um, policy, international refugee policy space. But what do we mean by community sponsorship and what does it really entail? And it's interesting that there's actually no one widely accepted definition of what community sponsorship is. And I've come up with my own definition, which is <laughs> um, at its most basic level, I think we can say that community sponsorship is constitutive of communities undertaking some or all of the responsibility to provide for the reception and integration of refugees until such time as they are self-sufficient. Um, so that, that can be things like providing for accommodation, helping refugees find jobs, um, helping them navigate uh, government services and so on. Now, this looks to be a fairly simple idea, but it can actually be programmed by policymakers in a range of different ways. And my research basically suggests that there are sort of three broad models of community sponsorship we can think about. The first one is what I would term a weak um, community sponsorship model. And that is where community sponsorship provides settlement support to refugees as part of a government um, reception program. So under this model, the government selects which refugees to, uh, to resettle to their country. And once they resettle there, the community supports the refugee in their integration and to fast track the integration into the community. So that could be, like I said, things like just providing housing support for, for refugee families. A second model, which is a bit stronger than that, is where community sponsorship is part of a government coordinated resettlement program. So this is something that we've seen in the UK. So under this model, refugees are, for example, identified by the government or are referred to the governments by UNHCR, and they are then matched with the sponsoring group in the country um, in which they are to be resettled. These sponsored refugees may then uh, form part of the government quota of um, resettled refugees or may be additional to the government quota uh, of, of refugees that the government sponsor. So models like this, as I said, are like the UK model and also Australia's previous, um, uh, previous community sponsorship model, which is the Community Refugee Settlement Scheme, which I'll talk about in a minute. 
And the third and more full-blown model of community sponsorship is where community sponsorship forms an additional resettlement pathways for refugees. So this is the model that Canada's had since 1978, where the community is able to identify and sponsor refugees, and refugees that come in through that program are additional to what the government provides. So embedded within these three broad models, there are a range of normative questions that policymakers have to address. What is the criteria for being a sponsor? What extent is the sponsorship obligations and how long do they last for? What role is there for government in the management and oversight of community sponsorship programs? Which refugees ought we prioritise for community sponsorship? And when we speak of community, what do we mean? Are we referring to businesses, church groups, the education sector, individuals? So there are many questions facing policymakers in this area, and there's, there's a range of different models floating around at the moment. And I think it's really important to, um, to be able to dissect them and to work out um, which models may work best in a particular context. So with that in mind, let me turn to examining what Australia has done in relation to community sponsorship in the past and what it's doing now. Not a lot of people are aware, but Australia actually has quite a rich history with community sponsorship. And this began in 1979 with um, what was termed the Community Refugee Settlement Scheme. The CRSS, uh, the Community Refugee Settlement Scheme, so I'll call it the CRSS, the CRSS was introduced by the Liberal government in 1979 under Immigration Minister Michael McKellar. At the time, um, this was post um, the Vietnam War, uh, and Australia had decided to uh, accept a large number of Vietnamese refugees. And what that did was it placed significant strain on government-run hostels and migrant reception centres to the point where they were overflowing with, with people. And the government needed a, a way in which to transition people from these reception centres into the community. And it was for that particular reason that they formed the Community Refugee Settlement Scheme. In my research, it's interesting that Canada started the program in 1978, the year before, but I couldn't work out from my research or find out um, that our program was directly influenced by the Canadians. I think it was more the fact that the government had to do this as a matter of um, necessity. So the CRSS worked as follows. Sponsors, um, or sponsors, so that could be community group individuals, um, could apply to the government to participate as a CRSS sponsor. They fill out an application form that states why they're uh, a suitable sponsor, what kind of um, support they can provide to refugees in terms of accommodation, English language tuition, um, what experience, past experience they've had in terms of settlement and so on. And then this was vetted by um, a committee in each state or territory called the Refugee Settlement Committee. So basically what we had then was a pool of sponsors in Australia. And offshore, um, overseas posts were making decisions about which refugees Australia would elect to resettle. And then they would refer back to um, Australia cases which they thought were suitable for community sponsorship um, through the CRSS. So that's what happened. There are a couple of other features of this program which are important to note. The first is that the government paid for all the airfares um, and the medical checks. 
And the sponsors in the initial phase were not able to name which refugees they wanted to sponsor. So it was very much a case of you say, I want to apply to sponsor for refugees, and the government basically then, then matches you and says, here's a family that's coming, um, and you have the obligation to, to follow through with that sponsorship. There was also, I think, a lot of collaboration between the government and the communities back then. The government would provide grants to groups that would sponsor um, two or more families. So on the second uh, group that you sponsor, you were eligible for a grant to help you um, through that process. It was initially only open to Vietnamese refugees, but then um, it was open to all refugees um, by the sort of uh, early 1980s um, onwards. This program over um, its lifetime helped to sponsor over 30,000 refugees um, in Australia to be, uh, to be settled. And by all government reports that were published on the program, um, it was overwhelmingly positive in terms of the outcomes. There were some drawbacks and some issues which um, still affect, I think, even the community sponsorship programs today, including things like problems between um, the sponsors and the refugees. For example, sponsors not knowing the extent of their obligations and what they wanted to do. Um, there were also problems with people moving to rural and regional Australia who weren't able to access um, some of the services that, that they required. So that's what happened back then. Um, so what's happening now? Well, community sponsorship wasn't touched again until 2013. Uh, when the expert panel on asylum seekers, which was instituted by uh, the Gillard government, to consider how Australia might respond to um, deaths at sea uh, with all the folks that were coming to Australia at that time. Now, the panel recommended for the reinstatement of offshore processing, but within that, it also recommended for an increase in Australia's resettlement program, including through private sponsorship. So there was a pilot that ran from 2013 to 2017 with the community pilot proposal, and then that was formalised um, in 2017 into what's known as the community support program. Now, in light of the time I have left, I'll just I'll just take you through the broad parameters of the community support program because it's very very different from the community refugee settlement scheme. So under the community support program. There are 11 appointed uh, what are called APOs, um, and these APOs are essentially community organisations that have the formal role of um, essentially they have a contract with the government or deed of agreement with the government to um, look after resettled refugees under the um, community support program. So they work with the community to find cases um, or individuals that they then put forward uh, as being people that can be supported under the Community Support Program. There are 1,000 places within Australia's refugee quota carved out for this program. And to be eligible, an individual has to be a refugee, has to be what I call job ready. So um, they have to be aged between 18 and 50. They have to have functional English. They have to have a job offer or they have to have skills that enable them to get a job very quickly, and they have to meet Australia's resettlement priorities. Unlike the CRSS, sponsors um, are responsible for paying for airfares, for um, the visa application fees, for medical checks, 
um, and also for administrative payments to the APOs um, who help to lodge the application. So the program itself is, is still in its infancy and really early days, um, but you can see that it's quite different from the CRSS back then. Firstly, because um, of the high cost involved. So we've worked out that it, it will cost something like $100,000 to sponsor a family of five under the program. Um, there's also some concern over the fact that refugees have to be job ready uh, in, in effect to be able to access community support under this program. Uh, and I think that raises some concerns as well. So I'll leave it there. That's, that's kind of where we're at at the moment with community sponsorship in Australia. Still, as, as I said, very much in its infancy. Um, and I think there's a lot that we can learn from what other countries are doing. So uh, we're very happy to hear from Russell about that. Thanks. Good evening. <clears throat> so for those of you who didn't read the flyer, just heard Khan. <laughs> Khan uh, works for the UNHCR, but importantly, he's working on a PhD at University of New South Wales on the topic he just spoke on, community sponsorship. Um, so I'm, I'm running a campaign at the moment for Amnesty International, which focuses quite heavily on community sponsorship and quite a little bit of a small cult following now behind Khan, um, <laughs> the work that he's doing. There's certainly been moments when I have desperately wished I could sort of just hologram Khan in to answer <laughs> some tough, tough questions. So it's, it's a privilege for me, it's a really big privilege for me to, to be able to speak uh, with you um, and share a stage with you and, and Russell tonight. Um, I want to thank the ANU I want to thank you for hosting us tonight. I want to acknowledge my colleague, Lisa, from Save the Children and the work that we're doing as a, as a community that Save the Children, Amnesty International, Welcome to Australia, Rural Australians for Refugees, Act for Peace. So we've got a few of us pulling together on this work. In the time that's been allowed to me, I'm going to talk a little bit about that work, specifically the work of Amnesty. I want to begin also by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we've gathered. Um, the Ngunnawal people have looked after their leaders present and past, have looked after this country for thousands of years before any of us got here. And those of us who have found refuge in Australia, who have found protection in Australia, seek to to walk with their people, present and futures, to look after this country as well. I had the opportunity of working with a, a traditional um, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leader when I was working in the Northern Territory in the East Arnhem Land, a gentleman by the name of Reverend Ronang. I spoke to him the other day about this work that a number of us are doing on community sponsorship. It's community-led, as he described. Um, settlement path for refugees and he's, you know, he said to me, you know, Shankar, our people for thousands of years have been driving community-led, neighbourhood-driven uh, pathways of safety and safe passage. 
It's inherent in our culture and our customs to offer that. A couple of hundred years, we offered that <coughs> to people that we thought were passing through and they decided to stick around for a little bit longer. Um, so this is this business of community-led, neighbourhood-driven resettlement or pathways to safety is, is one and the same with this land that we're on. My family and I found safe passage to Australia many years ago. Um, my parents were academics in the university, not too different, too different to this one in Sri Lanka. And the civil war was brewing around us and my father, a philosopher, he said, oh no, the civil war's not gonna come here. We're critical thinkers here. <laughs> We're critical thinkers at this university. We think about these issues. We don't just break into, you know, into, into these, these things. But unfortunately, he was a Tamil and arbitrarily detained and arrested and interrogated. Our house was um, ransacked by the, the police. My mother had memories of, of hiding her kids in the attic of their neighbour's home as the Tamil homes around them were burnt. I say this because refugees don't come to Australia for a holiday. Um, we come here leaving everything behind. Our culture, our history, our families because we have no other option. I've described myself as a reluctant refugee often because I didn't come by boat. I didn't have to risk my life to come here. We were fortunate that there was a family in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, Alison and her kids who took us in, um, who brought us across, who paid for our airfares. Um, she was probably shocked to see the six of us turn up, <laughs> sleeping on her uh, lounge room. Um, me running around naked made a, quite a stark contrast to her white kids who were all dressed in full clothes. There's images of this, <laughs> but it's not going on online. <laughs> but, you know, they did what they could. But my family um, went from being these strong, independent academics in the hill country of Sri Lanka were suddenly reliant on community organisations, churches, groups, to give us everything from food to furniture to the house that they're living in today was a church property. Uh, early forms of affordable rental there by the freeway. And uh, when it came on the market, they knew that inside the house you couldn't hear the freeway. And we got it cheap. And they're still living in today, many years later. Um, community sponsorship and the, the definition that Khan offered it, that is integration that supports until self-sufficiency is what made it possible for my family to call Australia home. It's by some twisted fate that I'm standing in front of you tonight as the refugee campaign coordinator of Amnesty International, where four months ago, in regional New South Wales, we launched a campaign, My New Neighbour. Um, Amnesty, as you know, will continue and has worked very hard to monitor the human rights violations that are happening in our region, in Manus and Nauru, and we will continue to do that. We'll continue to monitor and continue to report what's happening offshore in our region. But this campaign that we have launched 
is tapping into, celebrating the goodness in our neighbourhoods and our communities and calling on the Commonwealth Government to do better with its current community sponsorship program. So we launched in Wagga Wagga, recognising the contribution that regional Australians are making in this conversation. And they are. Right around the country, we're seeing examples in conservative country towns like Barnaby Joyce's Armadale of goodness coming from the heart of rural Australians. And that's why, for our work, rural Australians and refugees are an important voice in the Australian Community Refugee Sponsorship Initiative that Lisa and I are working on. Here in the Canberra, the ACT government was the first council, or the first that we insulted the quality council, although we think of it as council, but territory government to unanimously call on the Australian government to expand and improve the program for the reasons Khan said that there are challenges. Cost, eligibility criteria, the fact that we, for every privately sponsored refugee that you and I might sponsor, we're taking away from the intake. So the ACT government, that's ACT Liberal Party, ACT Labor Party, ACT Greens joined in making that happen. And what's interesting about that is that since then, 12 other local governments across the country have also all unanimously called for that to happen as well. From Fremantle in Western Australia, regional cities like Wagga Wagga, Albury Wodonga, Griffith, I don't even know where that is, um, <laughs> Randwick, Maribyrnong. Maribyrnong was interesting. That was the first refugee leader, political leader, uh, Councillor Cook Lamb, who came to Australia as a Vietnamese refugee, stood up, turned to her friend Bill Shorten in that electorate of Maribyrnong and said, get on with it, improve this program. Um, this this week, in a West Council in, in uh, New South Wales, um, a couple of nights ago, Canterbury Brankstown, um, joined us next Tuesday night to the city of Monash, which is my personal refugee welcome zone, that was home to us, uh, is going on the motion as well. And that would be the first electorate where a conservative federal MP sits. Uh, it's an important point that conservative audiences, progressive audiences, and everybody in between Absolutely. are joining this particular conversation. Um, I mentioned local governments, and then on beyond that, there's a whole bunch of players that are coming on board, friends that we haven't heard from for a long time, joining us on this road. Russell and I were speaking earlier, and Lisa as well, earlier this week, at the site of the Western Bulldogs Football Club. For 11 years, this club has been delivering settlement programs through its Ready Settle Go program. Some 20,000 lives have been touched by this boarding club. Um, an example of community leadership, of community-led, neighbourhood-driven resettlement. North Melbourne Football <laughs> Club. Um, brilliant team. I'm biased because I've been a member for about 10 years. Uh, there you go. <laughs> we should go to a game. Um, have, are about to join us in Peter Dutton's home, in Pauline Hanson's home in Queensland.
we're seeing Football Queensland step up and say, can we be a part of this as well? This is a campaign that is touching each and every corner of the country. We're working with sporting clubs, working with local governments. Just last week, we had our first school join the campaign in a little town called Camberwell, Victoria, the electorate of Josh Frydenberg. Does anyone know who Josh Frydenberg is? <laughs> Great. Then you know the love there. Um, we have a fairly elitist boys' grammar school saying, we want to play a part in this as well. We want to raise money if we can, but we want to change the conversation. So it's a good indication that we've got these community groups, players right across the spectrum of Australia, um, joining the conversation. We've got, and this campaign's been going for four months. So four months we've been able to, I think, tap into a range of different players, um, expand and improve the conversation on how we talk about refugees. The very name, My New Neighbour, removing the word refugee and reminding people to think about our neighbours and these being our potential new neighbours. And the question at that, at the heart of that being, what would you be willing to do if you're a new neighbour? Um, I'm going to bugger off now, but um, I did want to um, just briefly mention that Suzanne and Isabel are here from our ACT Refugee Network. If you'd like to know more about our My New Neighbour campaign and the work here in the ACT, um, please say hi to them. Um, we are trying to grow our refugee network here in the ACT, so please come along and say, say good day. Um, but I also want to acknowledge um, the other many, many hard-working organisations here in Canberra. Iraq and, and um, Canberra Refugee Support and Companion House, and there's a whole bunch of us working and pulling in the same direction. Of course, I think UNHCR is also based here as well. Um, so we're all doing it together, um, and it's great that we are pulling in this direction. And I'm going to now leave it to Russell, who you've all actually really come to listen to, um, talk about what's been working in the UK, and pass it to you. I'll try that again. Good evening. My name is Russell Rook. Um, it's wonderful to be with you tonight. I want to begin by acknowledging the Indigenous people who welcomed people to this land long before I got here, who welcomed many a migrant and a refugee and gave them a home and hospitality here. And we obviously acknowledge and respect uh, their elders, both in the past, the present and the elders that are emerging now. And I want to thank you for coming out on this night for this presentation. I want to thank Khan for his first talk. I wish he'd been around at the beginning of my week. I feel so much more informed now about community sponsorship. My, my talks over the last five days would have been at least 75% better if I'd heard that speak at the beginning. And thank you, Shankar, for both sharing your own personal story, but also sharing what is clearly going on in this country. And I have spoken so far, and in Adelaide, and I have spoken in uh, Melbourne, in a couple of places in Melbourne, and I have spoken in uh, Geelong and Bendigo and Canberra and Sydney tomorrow. And everywhere I've spoken, we have had people come out saying, we want to welcome refugees and we're really interested to explore sponsorship. So I can see that there is a movement that has long begun and I hope what we're doing here this week will help stir it up a bit more. I'm gonna speak very briefly about 
the story of sponsorship in the United Kingdom. I offer an apology. I am not an expert in refugees. Um, my boss, I work part of my life in the House of Lords, Baroness Sherlock of Durham is my boss. She's the shadow welfare minister in the House of Lords in Parliament. And she formerly was the boss of the Refugee Council. And she once said to my board, Russell Rook has done a very good job with this refugee project, especially considering he knows nothing about refugees. <laughs> so I, I probably know less than most people in this room, but over the last few years, my life has been caught up in the story of people in the United Kingdom trying to welcome refugees. I work for a group called the Good Faith Partnership that have been part of this discussion for a while in the UK. I now chair an organisation called Reset, which is trying to build the capacity uh, of communities to welcome refugees in the United Kingdom through sponsorship. And I occasionally get to hang out with the Global Refugee Sponsorship Initiative. And I want to thank Kate O'Malley, who's one of the leaders of that remarkable international programme to try and get the whole world doing this. Um, thanks for coming tonight, Kate. And yes, so that's what I end up spending some of my life in. So I'm going to tell you the story of how this has happened in the UK, and hopefully it will inspire and encourage you. We have a fairly poor reputation or a poor backstory of refugee resettlement in the United Kingdom. In the 10 years prior to 2015 and the Syrian crisis, we were, we were actually welcoming only 750 refugees a year at a time when you were welcoming in excess of 20,000 here in Australia. And then, as many of us do, because the weather is terrible in London, we went off to the Mediterranean in 2015 in August for our summer holidays, and we lay on the beach, and we ate our ice creams, and we drank our Diet Cokes, and we opened our newspapers and saw the most horrific pictures of people being washed up on a beach not far from the very beaches on which we were laying. And so we came back to Parliament, or those of us in politics came back to Parliament, and we found people banging down our door saying, we have to do something about the refugee crisis. And uh, fairly early on, our Prime Minister, uh, the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, made a commitment. He said, actually, we're going, to, we're going to stop just looking after those 750 refugees a year. We're going to increase that number to around 5,000. We're going to make a commitment to take 20,000 people displaced by the Syrian conflict, which then became 23,000 when he said we would also welcome 3,000 vulnerable children. And so suddenly things were rolling. And uh, faith groups and NGOs and community groups were now saying, well, actually, if we're going to have more refugees in, maybe we could borrow that, that, that program from, from Canada, the one you saw in the first video. I kind of, uh, I love a phrase or a quote from Iga Stravinsky, which says that talent borrows but genius steals. And pretty much all we've done in Great Britain is steal the Canadian program, adapt it for our own purposes. And I have to say, to my shame, I said to groups, oh, be lovely to have a, a sponsorship scheme just like the Canadians. They've sponsored 300,000 people since 1979. It's astonishing. If you're Canadian, it's just part of your national identity. You like ice hockey. You like maple syrup. You like refugees. That's just what it means to be Canadian. About 3 million people conservatively have been involved in welcoming a refugee in Canada. Probably more likely 5 million. Could be up to 8 million. It's part of the national discourse and life and identity. But I felt that actually it would take quite a long time to get our government to do something that brave. And shamefully, I told organisations, let's come up with a five-year plan. And five weeks later, the then Home Secretary stood up at the Conservative Party conference and said, out of the blue, I have instructed my officials to explore the, the possibility of a Canadian-style sponsorship scheme. And then within nine months, we were welcoming our first family of refugees. 
In fact, the Home Secretary herself, or the next Home Secretary, welcomed them with their sponsor, Archbishop Justin Welby, to their new home, a Grade II listed cottage in the grounds of a walled palace, Lambeth Palace in London. The third group who came to my church and were accommodated behind a crummy church hall in an old disused church minister's house kind of felt a bit left out that they didn't get the palace, but actually the first group got to live in a palace. And in fact, after a year, we had this huge celebration and people from all over the world, actually the Canadian immigration minister you saw there, came to this celebration at Lambeth Palace to celebrate a year of this family being in the UK. And I got to spend some time with the family and our home secretary. And our home secretary said to the family, look, what could we do to improve this program? Now in our own program, you house your family for two years. And uh, so she said, can, can we improve it? Is there anything we can do to make it better? To which the father said, I am very disappointed that I only get to live in a palace for two years. <laughs> so already the, the kind of sarcastic British humour was catching on and they were, they were doing very well. And now we have Reset, an organisation which is trying to help lots of communities sponsor. And some of you will have seen last week six different immigration ministers around the world came together to challenge the world to get involved with resettlement. I'm going to tell you very quickly all the things you have to do if you want to be a sponsor in the United Kingdom. You basically form a group. You need a charity or an enterprise that you connect with. Uh, you then come up with a, a, a resettlement plan. You might have an organisation like Reset or a, a refugee agency that will help you with that. You apply to government to sponsor a family into the community and you have to find the suitable home. You have to find a home for two years. You're committed to resettle the group for one year, but you have to have a home for two years. You raise 9,000 pounds. You don't give that money anywhere. It doesn't go to the government, doesn't go to a refugee agency. You keep that yourself to pay for some of the extra things that a family needs. In our system, the government pays for the housing, pays for healthcare, pays for benefits, and it pays for education. So the government pay for all of that, and you have this pot of money for extra things, extra English tuition, or if, if the rent is a bit more above the government rental allowance. You undertake some training as a team, and uh, you might be one or two days maximum. Some of your wider team will probably just do some online stuff, but your core team, usually about 10 people, wider team tends to be about 30 people, will take on some training. And then you welcome your family, you help them access all the services in the community to get into the health system. You help them to uh, access schools. You help them to get on the benefit system so that they get their, their welfare check. You do all of those things to help them become part of the community. And most importantly, obviously, you help them to integrate into the community. Now, I'm going to say three things. And I'm going to do it very quickly. We've only got five minutes left. Um, there are three things that we are seeing that is happening through community sponsorship. The first thing, and you would hope I would say this, is it changes the lives of the refugees. If it didn't do that, we shouldn't be doing it anywhere. But actually, it clearly does change the lives of our refugees. It offers them an effective welcome. It means, as you saw in the video, that there are not just one caseworker looking after them or one government worker, but a whole community of people around them. It accelerates their integration into the community. It helps to manage issues of vulnerability. So you will see a picture in a minute of Bissan. She's the little girl, or actually she's the eldest girl of the family that my community have sponsored. She has a complex blood disorder. They lived in Lebanon on a roundabout for five years. Little Mohammed never lived on a house until he moved into that house behind the Crummy Church Community Centre just around the corner from my house. And uh, Bissan, uh, his dad was in an exploitative kind of labour situation so that he could bribe his way to the front of the hospital queue so that he could get the blood transfusions that kept his daughter alive. On one occasion, at least, they gave her the wrong type of blood. Bissam wouldn't be alive if she hadn't been sponsored today. 
and you'll see the end of her story in a minute. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. So, first of all, we see that it does definitely change the communities. It accelerates their uh, integration, it helps manage some of the vulnerabilities. Many of our uh, refugees have complex health conditions. It helps in providing extra language support. It helps children get into school, and it certainly assists adults into training and employment. We have a really challenging scenario in the UK. We've a very poor record of getting our, our refugees into work. This is Manal, she's the mum of the family around the corner from my house. She's starting a catering business. One of the adverse effects she's having on our community is we're all putting on weight. And her husband, Gassan, is a caretaker of a local Salvation Army centre down the road and works in a Lebanese uh, supermarket. The second thing it does, the first thing it changes the refugees, that's fairly important. Secondly, it changes our life as a community. So it does all kinds of things. It builds our capacity. It gets us working with government effectively. It helps us to, to get involved, not just with supporting this family, but to think about other vulnerable migrants in the community. All of the groups we're working with, we can see. Most of the groups we're working with who have actually sponsored one are already on to sponsoring their second family or are helping another group to do so. It changes the community radically. We had a one-year birthday party. You'll see some clips from it in a minute to celebrate our family being in Merton, which is where I live. Merton is in the southwest of London. It is famous for a certain sort of little town within it called Wimbledon where they play some tennis. <laughs> Only once a year. <coughs> but anyway, so in our community, we had a celebration and we put a microphone at the front of the hall, in fact, the crummy front hall in which they live, in front of which they live, and uh, there was a small mic and a medium mic and a high mic. And there was a... Time to celebrate and share all the experiences. Unfortunately, thankfully, the refugees grabbed the mic at various points and said, thank you for welcoming us to this community. But it was only a fraction of the hour of sharing that took place. Because most of that hour was taken up with people coming and saying, thank you for moving into our community because you've changed our lives. So lastly, not only does it change the life of the refugees, and not only does it change the life of our community, but it also starts to change the story about migration and resettlement in our local area. All the groups we're working with, we're seeing this, this process of refugee sponsorship is triggering conversations with communities saying, what kind of community do we want to be? Do we want to be the kind of community that welcomes refugees. And as Shankar was saying, actually, when you say to most communities, whether they're conservative, or whether, they're, whether they're, they're, they're progressive, whether they're kind of liberal, whether they're Labour, actually, most communities say, yes, we want to welcome refugees. One uh, story was the, that uh, uh, actually someone you've seen on a video was knocking on doors in her community to see how their community was adapting to the family that arrived six weeks earlier. And she knocked on the door of a family that she thought, mm, they'd been really quite negative about the family coming in the first place. They'd given quite a lot of opposition, and so I really wasn't quite sure how this was going to go, but she felt, I'm knocking on every door in the village, I've got to knock on their door soon. So she knocked on their door, and the door opened, she kind of sort of said her piece and prepared for this person to come back at her, and the person looked at her and said, oh no, we like our refugees, <laughs> which is an exponential, in fact, infinite percentage rise of the number of refugees that that family liked just a few weeks <laughs> earlier. It starts to change the narrative. I'm going to play you one video in a minute, which just shows you the story of the family that live in my community. It's just four minutes long, and then you've got half an hour to ask us as many questions as you can come up with. But one story before I finish. 
I leave my house most mornings and it takes me about eight minutes to walk to the tube station to get into Westminster for work. And about minute four or five, I walk past the home of our refugee family. And um, on one particular day, I left a bit late and so I saw the girls, they were leaving for school. And I got about 100 yards off and their house is, uh, as I say, in, behind a, a church hall. And once they've got past the church hall and onto the main street, they're, they're almost halfway to school, which is just on the next corner. And they, they got out of their house and they'd come to the main street and they started to walk along the pavement and they stopped. And they turned to their mum and their dad and they waved and they blew kisses and they said, I love you. And then they started to go to school and then they stopped again. And then they turned and they waved and they blew kisses and they said, I loved you. And then they turned to go to school again and they stopped. And they waved and they blew kisses and they said, I love you. And finally, they went off to school. And I thought two things. Firstly, why don't my teenage boys do that? <laughs> and secondly, that's a beautiful picture of community sponsorship. They lived on a roundabout for five years. And now they've got a home that they don't want to leave in the morning. And a family life which is just so wonderful that they don't, they don't want to leave the house. But at the same time, they've got this great school and they just can't wait to get there. This is the story of the Almabuses. I'm Major Nick Coke. I'm the core officer for Rains Park Corps and I'm also the refugee coordinator for the Territory. Back in 2015, I saw the images on the news of hundreds of thousands of refugees trying to get across the Mediterranean into Europe, and I felt really challenged that I had to do something, and I was really moved in particular by that image of that little boy, Alan Curdy. something particular about those news reports that hit home to me, that we have to do more. It was about that time that the UK government had pledged to take 20,000 refugees from Syria. For Europe, it's the biggest humanitarian crisis that we've had since the Second World War. Millions of people have been displaced. And so for those of us in Britain, we have a responsibility to play a part in what, we, what are we doing um, to, help, to help those people. In Wayne's Park, we worked with the Home Office to design a new government-backed programme called Community Sponsorship. We made a commitment to look after a Syrian family that involved providing accommodation, but also building a team to give language support, access to education and health services, and to help them settle in and find their feet. The whole core got involved. No, that one, that one should go on the bottom, so they match. We were kind of pioneers of the programme, and we knew if it's a success here, it could be rolled out far more widely. got to meet the family at the airport when they arrived off the plane from Lebanon where they'd been refugees for seven years. They came through the gate and there was this wonderful moment where we greeted each other and we knew that this was the beginning of something new and exciting and for us it was just so moving 
because we've been preparing for so long for them to come. Gassan and Manal, with her mum and dad, who are just lovely, lovely people. And the three kids, Bissan, Rayan, Mohammed, they're an amazing family. It's been a year since Gassan and Manal arrived here in Mains Park. Since we arrived, everyone here has been very helpful. They have been with us every step, showing us what we need to know and showing us around. They stuck with us. They showed us maps of the area, the currency, the shops. They took us to the hospital, especially during our first month. Life is much better and the last year has gone very quickly. Before they arrived, we already knew that Bissan, the older of the two girls, was actually quite ill. She has a life-threatening blood disorder. If they hadn't come here, she wouldn't have survived. The war meant she couldn't get the right medical support. Bravo, well done, well done. Can you eat, eat, eat? But since they've been here, Bissan's health has improved significantly. And the medical team is saying that if they can find a donor, there's a chance she can be completely cured. Our family in Rains Park are doing really well. Gassan has a job in a cafe, he's also doing some cleaning work and taking English lessons. Manal is learning English as well, she's been doing some catering jobs and has made some good friends. <laughs> it's the same as this one. Hamid has been in nursery and has settled in well, and his English is coming in well too. His big sisters, Rayan and Bissam, are doing well in school. The families had years of trauma. Their home was completely destroyed because of war, and family members have been killed. It's beyond what we can imagine. But they now have a chance to build their life again. And there's some good news about Bissam. The medical team found a donor. All being well, she'll get a bone marrow transplant in the summer. to have a celebration to mark our family being with us for a year. Everyone who's been involved was invited along. I take my hats off to the Salvation Army because they're, they're doing a wonderful job. As a pilot scheme, I think it's been a huge success and so I think that the good news is we'll now see this rolling out around the country. I think it's really brought the, the church together, the community together. It's really used everybody's skills. It's been so rewarding, you know, um, not just make a difference in their lives, but they've been such a blessing to us as well, which, yeah, it's been amazing. We've made a good start, but there's so much more to do. My hope for the future is that the Salvation Army will really get its sleeves rolled up and stuck in to responding to the refugee crisis. How can we not do it when there's people suffering and needing help and needing sanctuary and we have resources to be able to help them. So there's the story of the Almobusis. Um, I'm going to give you a chance to uh, turn to the person next to you and think about what's your best question you're going to ask because you're going to need to ask it fairly soon. So while you do that, um, uh, Khan, Shankar and Lisa are going to come and sit here and then you can ask them the questions, make them really difficult and then they'll come up with good answers. Go! 
Okay, this is how we're going to do this. Um, we've got just under half an hour, and I want to cram in as many questions as possible. Our steam panel, you've met Khan and Shankar. We're joined by Lisa Button, who is one of the people bringing together the Community Refugee Sponsorship Initiative. And formerly worked for Save the Children, now works for the Centre for Policy Development, and is doing a brilliant job of trying to stir up this movement. So I'm going to take uh, three questions, and then we'll uh, kind of work out how we answer them. So who's got one question? Okay. <laughs> well, I just noticed that all of your things said families, and um, I was wondering whether there are any like gay lesbian groups that sponsor gay lesbian uh, refugees. Okay, that's one question. I'll come back to that. Another question. Yes, sir. Please give us your name and your question. Hi, my name's Toby. Uh, my question, I think, is probably to Khan. I was wondering if there'd been any longitudinal studies of the success of the families that are resettled through this program versus other state-based programs or other programs? Oh, that's a nice techie policy one. Excellent. One more. If, if the next one I could understand, that would be really good. I think this one is understandable. Um, in ACT, I'd just really like to understand what's happening, but then in particular, housing tends to be an issue in Australia, Canberra, uh, Sydney, etc. So how, how are we kind of helping these refugees get housing short, in particular short term, kind of that two-year period? Okay, excellent. So I'll answer the first one. Khan, you've got the second. Lisa, can you do the third? Excellent. Uh, in answer, the first one is really simple. The UK program has no element of naming involved whatsoever. Right. So what happens is United uh, UNHCR um, uh, identify the most vulnerable groups using seven uh, categories of vulnerability and they come onto the British programme. So our government is careful to match, so it would be careful to match the right person. So Bissan lives less than three miles from a very specialist hospital that can meet her needs. But there is not a situation where, as you say, an LGBT plus group can say, can we sponsor yeah. someone? Or a Christians can say, could we have a persecuted Christian? Or a Muslim could say, could we have a Shia Muslim? That can't happen. Well, I was meaning because their, their basis of their refugee application was their sexuality, not because they... So, yes, yeah, so that's a very good point. So if, if, if a refugee has that on their registration, that would mark yeah. them high on the vulnerability, which means they would have a lot higher likelihood. Yeah. But we've got to be honest, 22.5 million refugees, and we think 1% currently stand any chance of resettlement. So it's, it, it is a real lottery. Yeah. Uh, can't answer the question about longitudinal studies, please. Um, the short answer is, in the Australian context, no, there hasn't been any longitudinal study on uh, how well refugees have integrated who've been um, sponsored by the community. There were a number of sort of shorter studies that were done by governments and also by um, NGO bodies around the community refugee settlement scheme. And as I said, they generally showed that um, the outcomes were positive. But yeah, I think it would be really beneficial if we could do some more longitudinal study. Mm -hmm. uh, some of that work has been done in Canada, um, but the Canadian system, there's an element of bias in it too, in the sense of uh, a lot of families, uh, a lot of people are being sponsored by their families. Yeah. That already increases their likelihood of, of, of integration. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's an area that requires further attention down the road. Absolutely. Lisa. So, is this on? No. 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 I think it's just recording well, it's for recording. the... Okay. Um, so to answer the question about um, housing, um, I guess to distinguish between the current scheme in Australia, which as uh, Khan mentioned has only been operating since March this year, basically um, 
there's no uh, criteria in that system that requires a broader community group to be involved. It's a private sponsorship scheme. And as a result, most of the people who are being sponsored are being sponsored by family. So the housing solution is usually being sold by that, those family members. My understanding, though, is that if that were to not be the case or fell through, then um, the, the sponsored refugee would uh, be eligible for um, government rental assistance, but at the end of the 12 months, uh, the government would be seeking for repayment, seeking repayment of those um, funds from the sponsor. So the sponsor gives uh, an assurance of support for 12 months that covers any um, social security payments or rental assistance for the first 12 months. Yep. Um, but uh, I, I just wanted to make it clear that um, the community groups um, and, and organisations who are involved in the refugee sponsorship initiative are actually advocating for a, a different model uh, for community sponsorship in Australia that would uh, bring down the cost of sponsoring and also involve broader uh, community groups and sponsorships. So it's a bit different from the current scheme. There you go. Um, we should say that, that very quickly, while someone thinks who our next question is, if you looked at British, um, Canadian and Australian schemes, British, cheap. You raise £9,000 and you don't give it away. Aust uh, the Canadian, slightly more expensive because you are paying for welfare and you are paying for housing there, but you're not paying for any immigration costs and you're not paying school or healthcare. The current programme that the Australian government is very expensive because you're paying for all of that stuff and you're paying large fees in terms of immigration processing and for a, um, a refugee agency to support you in your work. So that's one of the things we have concerns that makes it inaccessible. Another question. Yes, excellent. Your name and your question. My name, Angela. Where do we start? We, the questions that we've had so far have not been specifically about the community idea. With that concept, you've got to have a community, I mean, church groups or the group that you were talking about. Um, if you're not part of one... What do you do? What do you do? Okay, another question. Um, my name's Amanda. I was just interested in um, how the families that are selected cope with the extraordinary amount of um, sort of focus that they've got considering that they're probably traumatised as well. So okay. there's an expectation that they're going to be tremendously grateful, um, but, you know, yep. why should they be? Yep. Uh, <clears throat> Very good. Any other question? Louisa. Um, I'm just wondering, with the family that your community sponsored, yep. uh, what were the qualifications? And so I'm thinking more down the road, what other areas should we, we be advocating for, like skills recognition? Sure to enable proper integration. Okay, excellent. Um, Shanka, could you ask the question? If you're, if you're in a community and you're thinking, I'd like to do this, what would you suggest? Where, where do they start? Where would you, what would they do today? And then we'll come to Leisha and you can talk a bit about Creasy and... Yeah, brilliant. So um, if they were asking the question, what can I do today to get on board? I would say, sign the petition um, that Amnesty has got that is calling on the government to expand and improve the program so that you've actually got a fair chance of hitting it and accessing it. Uh, and join some 13,000 other Australians who have done that in the last four months. Um, that would be the first thing. Second thing, I suppose, would be what we're doing together with Creasy is that we have got an online pledge form 
where you can pledge what you'd be willing to do. So have you got a spare room? Have you got jobs that you can give them, money? What kind of support are you willing to provide or able to provide today if the policy model that Creasy has proposed that we should be adopting in Australia is introduced tomorrow and we needed to call on you tomorrow, what are you able to do that? Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent summary. Um, I mean, there, there is an option as well of getting on board with the current scheme uh, as it is uh, with, you know, it does have some flaws, but uh, I don't know that we necessarily want to see it catastrophically fail. We'd like to see it as a, uh, a, a step towards a, a better scheme um, and that uh, details of that are found on the uh, Australian uh, Department of Home Affairs website. Uh, but I would urge you to, to do the two things that Shank has mentioned, get on board with Amnesty's petition and, and the community refugee sponsorship initiatives uh, um, sign-up page. Um, Lisa, because the screen has magically gone up, which would have had the, um, yeah, I don't know, it's all disappeared. Um, website for Chrissy that people can find you on? ausrefugeesponsorship.com.au. That's right. And actually, if you just Google just Refugee Sponsorship Australia, you go straight there. But please, you know, check that out and add your name. In answer to your question, so the two questions about the UK family. Um, the first that we found in terms of the level of people's support, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, it's difficult to say because every family is different. And you have to manage, obviously, both the expectations of the family and the expectations of the sponsor. We had one sponsor that was wanting to be terribly helpful and so decided to design an Uber service specifically for the family so that they only had to make a phone call and suddenly a car pulled up outside their front door and they got a lift to wherever they wanted to go. And then we had to sort of say to the sponsor, but at some point, someone's going to have to teach them how to catch the bus. Um, and your job is not to make this family dependent on you, it's to make them independent. But with that process of making them independent, you come into all kinds of things. What happens if they don't really want much of a relationship? What happens if they want to move eventually to another town where they've got family or friends or people they knew from Syria or wherever they were? So we, we have to sort of manage both those things. But the aim of the, the, aim of the program is obviously... To, first and foremost, to save and change the life of the family and to give them the freedom to live the life that they want to live. And uh, we haven't had too many difficult moments for sponsors just yet, but um, if you were to talk to Canada, you would find numerous stories of sponsorships that didn't quite work out the way the sponsor wanted to. I did a tour this time last year with Mayor David Henderson of Brockville, Ontario. He was a mayor who'd helped sponsor a family in. And his family thought of, well, he thought for a moment they were going to move away just within a few months of moving into the community. And he said, we, we just had to come to terms with the fact that we'd saved their life. So even if they move away, what we've done is still very much worth doing. And the question about skills, uh, it's difficult to know. In our context, we, don't, we get a fair amount of information about the family, but because the family are marked out on vulnerability, it's not that, um, to be honest, their skills play a great deal of role in their resettlement. So uh, the government would try to match if they had certain skills. So if they had someone who had been in a farmer or in an agricultural context, you probably wouldn't resettle them to my community in an inner city. But actually most of the people coming on our program are fairly low skilled. Um, we find in the UK that actually um, people who have been displaced by the Syrian crisis um, who have sought asylum 
tend to be more highly trained. So they were doctors, they had money, they could pay a trafficker. They could get out of the country and get to England and claim asylum and become a refugee that way. Those that come through the UNHCR tend to be vulnerable, which means often as families there's low levels of education, they might even not be literate in their own language, so that brings another level of challenge to the literacy piece. So we, we have, I don't know if anyone else, I mean the Australian programs traditionally have been much more focused around employability and skills. Carl? Yeah, I mean I think your question raises a really um, important consideration in terms of overall policy setting, which is where do we situate community sponsorship? Because the Australian model at the moment is really focused on refugees that have skills. The problem is that because it, it comes out of the government quota, which is traditionally reserved for refugees who are most vulnerable, there's a criticism that essentially we're cherry-picking the most highly skilled refugees at the expense of the more vulnerable refugees. So one of the policy questions that might be worth asking is, if we want to take in people that have skills, might it be better for us to readjust or reconfigure some of our skilled migration criteria to allow those refugees to, to play on a level playing field. So for example, things like skills recognition um, or English language sort of um, evidence, right? If you're in a refugee camp, it's very difficult for you to go to an IELTS testing standard and prove that you have English ability, whereas someone from you know, a developed country can do that very easily. So one of the, the, the things that I'm thinking about is, um, is that link between community sponsorship and other alternative migration pathways and where do we where do we draw those boundaries um, and where do we place community sponsorship this is a really important question from a sort of policy point of view to consider yeah, we have time for three more questions some of our esteemed panelists have to get on planes and things like that because they're very glamorous what's your name and your question my name's Linda thank you um, it's, it's sort of along the lines that Carmen was just um, referring to, and I'm wondering whether or not in some circumstances there's a risk that such a scheme can be too successful. And, and what I mean by that, you're going to think, how can that possibly be? But when you're talking about, say, a country like Australia, where we've always had a very generous, you know, 20,000 thereabouts um, resettlement scheme, compared to 750 in the UK, which is extraordinary. Um, is there not the risk that, especially the way the scheme's working now, where I think there's, you said there's 1,000 or so and it's coming out of the, out of the um, quota, um, of it gradually encroaching upon that scheme? So let's say it's 20, then we have 1,000, then it's 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. If it's too successful, there might be the risk of that happening. So instead of it being an add-on, it starts detracting. Mm -hmm. And then, as you say, um, when when you're looking at such things as skills and, and English language, then it really is going to disadvantage those pe those people who really are in need. Very good question. Follow that. Two more questions. <laughs> yes, your name and your question. I'm Michaela. It's really encouraging to hear from you, Shankar, about the increasing number of local governments and councils that are coming on board unanimously. So I'm just keen to hear more about the plans beyond that. How do we move the conversation to the state and federal levels and get the necessary buy-in to actually see the change that we in the room all want to see? Brilliant question. And can we ask, uh, uh, Lisa, is there a chance that this could be just too successful and uh, we could end up doing less resettlement with the government stream because we're doing so well with the community sponsorship and then we'll come to Shankar and what, what exactly do we do to rally our communities? 
It's a great question. I think we'd all have to acknowledge there is some risk, but I think that the opportunity um, outweighs the risk. And what I would like to see is, um, and I think Russell can talk to this in the UK context, is the um, added benefits of community sponsorship leaching into the broader government resettlement um, scheme so that not only are community-sponsored refugees supported by community groups, but government-sponsored or government-funded refugees um, are, are settled as well. And I think um, in terms of the risk, uh, I think you know, one of the main things we have to just be conscious of as a community is that um, you know, government is responsive to, to our calls in this area. And if church groups and sporting groups and uh, educational institutions are calling for this, but setting limits upon what the basis on which they're prepared to participate, um, that is an influential factor in the future policy directions of this. So um, I think if, if we uh, stand f firm as to what we're prepared to do and not prepared to do as a community, that can help to guard against that risk. I would say before you, Shanko, in, in the, your inference there, um, the, the, within the UK system, a number of things have already started to happen in a relatively short pace of time, which is exactly the opposite, rather than kind of it actually helping other programs. So we now are exploring possible opportunities for community sponsorship to help those who are in asylum. We're uh, talking to the government about pilots for community sponsorship to provide an alternative to detention in some communities where we use that. Um, and we are talking, we didn't have additionality, so that our numbers count towards the government target. And I think post-2020, there's a very good chance that we will get additionality. And you ultimately want what Canada got to, where eventually the government said, okay, for every single one sponsored in by a community, the government will match it one for one. So it can work the other way, and we have to guard it, obviously, not going the wrong way. Shankar, what can they do? It's a really great question to, uh, to finish the night as we all get up and all rush to find how we can join the campaign, <laughs> where it's going. There are some 530 local government associations in Australia. 150 of them are refugee welcome zones. But we all have that same question. What does that exactly mean? How does it translate? Uh, having 150 refugee welcome zones. For us, I think one of the things we think about with local governments is that one, they are a very good indicator of what local communities are wanting. And when a unanimous decision is passed at a local government level, it sends a message to the local federal MP mm. that this local government is serious across all political groups, that the program that we are currently looking at that has been introduced earlier this year, that we want to make better, is being demanded to be made better by that local government. Secondly, many of the organisations that are going to be important to rolling out and expand and improve community sponsorship program are in some ways tied to their local councils, whether it's sporting groups, churches, the grandma's knitting groups, um, whoever they are. Um, have some relationship or get some information from local governments. I think local governments are going to be a very critical part of facilitating conversations and hosting forums like this one, encouraging their constituency to be a part of the solution. So that's another important factor. So the one, sending a message to the local federal member that this is a community that is serious about this, and particularly true in regional and rural areas where local governments play such a critical role. 
uh, to facilitating conversations in the community. Um, and then ultimately three, that you know, we are so new to um, community sponsorship in many ways. Many Australians, uh, many of you might not have known about community sponsorship before you walked in today. And I think it's at that critical juncture that we have got this milestone movement in, in 13 local government areas and here in the ACT where the jurisdictional government has come on board. But yes, you're right, there is a lot of work now for us to do to pivot from that win to talk to Western Bulldogs or to talk to ACT Netball or to, to talk to the many other organisations and, and, and churches or spaces that need to now come on board as well as part of the conversation. So it's by no means have we suddenly transformed the landscape on community sponsorship um, by getting the local council to symbolically say, let's just make this happen. Um, for us, um, for our new campaign, this is a milestone of where we're going next. So I do encourage you to join us. I want to say, um, I work for the Labour Party, and uh, uh, I uh, worked for the previous leader of the Labour Party, and we lost the general election, and I got into this after that. I helped the government, which is a Conservative government, which is also managing a thing called Brexit, you may have heard about it, which was a vote caused largely to leave the European Union because of perceptions around immigration. There's something very interesting about community sponsorship. It does have the ability to bring together some very strange bedfellows and build alliances across different groups. Conservative, Labour in our context, Labour, Liberal, Progressive, Conservative, whatever we want to say, it cuts through to a very large group. And there's not many immigration policies that do that. So I think the stuff that Shankar and, and uh, the <coughs> Community Refugee Sponsorship Initiative are doing has every chance of success, because I think you will find some very, very interesting people gathering behind this movement. And I would like to finish with one story, and then we're going to go. We started with a story from Canada. We should end with a story from Canada. In 1979, the mayor of Ottawa, Marion Dewar, who was not a politician, she had come from a nursing background, was opening her newspapers to see bodies washed up on beaches and others on boats trying to get away from the Vietnamese crisis. She felt that her country had to do something and she happened to be the mayor in the capital city and the seat of government. So she went <coughs> to see the immigration minister. And she said to the immigration minister, what are we doing? The immigration minister said, I've got permission to take 4,000 refugees into Canada. She said, that's ridiculous. We've got to do better than that. He said, well, actually, I've also got this mechanism that will make it possible for communities to sponsor some refugees in. And if we could get that up and working, I could take another 4,000. She looked him in the eye and she said, we'll take the other four. He said, what? She said, we'll take the other four. And in the next year, the community of Ottawa welcomed 4,000 Vietnamese refugees. She gathered the town in various sports halls and told them what they were doing, and there was an incredible response. What she didn't know is that in, 20, in 40 years' time, her country would sponsor nearly 400,000 refugees. The power of people like you standing before your elected officials, your ministers, your MPs, your councillors, to say, our community wants to welcome refugees, is incredibly powerful, and who knows where it will lead. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Please give a round of applause for our panel.